Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of uh, Simplifying the Sword. This week we read Parashat Vayera. The Parashat Vayera, we see the angels come to visit Abraham after his Brit Milah. We see the birth of Yitzhak, the destruction of Sedom and Amorah, the Lot uh, and his daughters, the exile of Hagar and Yishmael, and the uh, the end of the parasha deals with the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. One of the things that I think uh, we have to think about when we're uh, when we're thinking about Abraham is the tremendous challenge that Abraham faced. On the one hand, Abraham is born in the Jewish year 1948, which is about 300 years after the the flood little less than 300 years. He's alive when Noah is alive. He gets to meet Shem. He gets to talk to Shem. And all the world at that point were descendants of Noah. So all of the world had some recognition of Hashem. Hashem had brought the flood. Hashem had saved their ancestor. And Shem is still alive, a guy who's literally on the, on the ark with all of these people. So there had to be some level of reality of Hashem in the world at that time, some level that reality of Hashem went to Hashem as the ultimate creator, but the people then decided to go to the Avodah Zarah. We discussed a little bit about the the people of the Tower of Babel and their motivation. And one thing we have to remember that in a world where we have uh, a reality of Hashem, in order for that world to be 50-50, there has to be a reality to Avodah Zarah. Although Rambam, Maimonides, says that, that Avodah Zarah, witchcraft, all of these things are, uh, are, uh, are for the most part nonsense, most of the rabbis do not agree with him. Most of the rabbis will tell you that there is a power of magic, there is a power of witchcraft, there is a power of the dark side, there is a power of the force of the dark side. And some even suggest that uh, Rambam, uh, at the end of his life... Uh, at the end of his life, to change his opinion. I, I don't love to go through that because uh, he doesn't write that himself. But the question is, does does this magic and witchcraft exist today? That's one question people often ask. But but I think that the challenge that Abraham faced was tremendous. You know, we say he's the Ivri, he's the other side of the river. He stands alone. Uh, so so in a, in a world that, that there's a reality of Hashem, there's the reality. We, we told the story before. I think it's important to... Uh, to recall the story, uh, so so we know that the, the Gemara tells us that at the end, the destruction of the Bet Hamikdash, we lost our taava, our desire for idolatry, and I think this relates also to this lack of reality of Hashem. While the Bet Hamikdash is existing, we see ten miracles happening every day. We can go to the Kohen, we could ask him a question, he can dial up the Urim Vetumim, he can answer our question, there's Nevi'im, if a person's sick, he goes to the Navi, he directly connects to Hashem, he gives him an answer. But when that starts to fade, then what happens is, as Hashem comes hidden, the, the Avodah Zarah, to a certain extent, becomes hidden. We know that there's the story that, uh, that we've told, the story we tell in the Gemara, the Gemara in Sanhedrin tells us that, uh, and we mentioned it, but it's important to, to remind ourselves of it. Rav Ashi was sitting with his students and he told them, tomorrow we're going to discuss our friend Menashe. 
Rebbe Menashe was one of the most wicked kings in the history of uh, of, uh, of the dynasty of David HaMelech. And the Gemara tells us that that night, Rav Menashe, he has a dream, and in his dream, Rav Ashi appears to him, and he tells him, you call yourself my friend, you equate yourself to me, you call yourself a colleague. He says, you're not even in my league, you don't even know an inkling of what I know. And he said to Rav Ashi, I'm going to ask you the simplest of questions, and you're going to see you know nothing. He says, when you make the Berachav, Hamotzi, where do you cut the bread? And Rav Ashi admits that he doesn't know, and Menashe told him the halacha that the bread is cut from the place that's the most well-baked. Then Menashe blasted Rav Ashi. How could you call yourself a Talmid Chacham? How dare you refer to me as your colleague? You don't even know simple halachot. So then Rav Ashi in the dream turns the tables and he says, well, if you're such a brilliant guy, such a scholar, such an expert, how could it be that you, you worshipped idols? How could you reconcile that? And Menashe answers him, if you had been alive when I was alive, the Yetzir Haraf idolatry was so great, you would have tripped over your coat, running towards the idols to worship them. Don't ask me about Avodah Zarah. You can't even comprehend how strong the urge to worship Avodah Zarah is. There was a reality to Avodah Zarah in the time of, in the time of Menashe. There was a reality. There was ability to, to control in some way these forces. And this is really what the challenge was to Avraham Avinu. He's living in a world where Nimrod is controlling forces of the dark side. There's definitely something going on and he's going to stand on the other side, separate himself from everyone else. The other aspect that we have to remember ourselves with regard to uh, to uh, to, uh, to Avraham Avinu is that he was an expert in astrology. We're going to come to that in, in a few minutes. And he was able to see what lies in the future. He saw... Fate. He saw what the Mazalot describe, and he was living off of that, and he was sort of locked into that, and Hashem has to remove him from that place later on. But I want to tell you a story about the realities of Abu Dazara. Uh, I saw a beautiful story, uh, really a story that makes us think, and it really makes us think about our own soul and how our own soul, how valuable it is, and who we are as a people, and what it means to have a soul of Yehudi. It was a, a, there's a rabbi, his name is Rav Yaakov Rahimi, and he tells this story, and I've heard versions of this story, and other stories like it, and I even had one experience myself to, to describe. He tells that there was a Rosh Yeshiva who came to America all the time. Like all the Rosh Yeshivas, they come to America to collect money, and when they come to America, they come to New York, and often they have a driver. The driver meets them in New York, the driver takes them from place to place to place, especially in Manhattan. He's bringing them from synagogue to synagogue in the morning, and then from office to office all during the day. And the rabbi is having meetings to try to collect money. Sometimes the driver will suggest, based on other people he's driven, and these rabbis build a relationship with these these drivers. So this certain rabbi had a certain driver. For years he was using this driver. He's a Jewish guy, but zero religion, not religion, good driver, does everything he's supposed to do, not religious. And the rabbi had not been to New York in, in over the, the year or so because of COVID and restrictions and flying. And finally, after a year and a half, the rabbi returns to New York and he's picked up. He makes arrangements. The driver's going to spend the week with him. He makes arrangements with this driver that he's going to pick him up. And the driver comes and picks him up, and the Rosh Yeshiva looks at the driver, and he's taken aback. The guy's wearing a kippah. Not only the kippah, when he comes out of the car, he sees tzitzit hanging from the driver. He says, what happened to you? He says, I never saw you wearing kippah. I never saw you wearing tzitzit. And the guy says, Rabbi, uh, I'm also Shomer Shabbat. 
and I've started learning. And uh, he said, uh, my life has changed. He goes, what happened? How, how did this happen? Please tell me how it happened. And the driver says to him, you know, Rabbi, a few months ago, I had a call from a regular client. He's a businessman, a goy uh, that I that I work with for a long time, a wonderful person. And uh, he said to me uh, that he needed me to take him on a trip to New Hampshire, to a forest in New Hampshire, a six-hour drive. And I said, okay. I said, and what are we going to do? He says, I'm going to have a meeting there, and then an hour or so later, you'll drive me back. So the, the driver says, of course, you know, he's going to make money for the full day. And he picks him up. They drive up to New Hampshire. And uh, the businessman is doing whatever work he's doing in the back seat. They come and he's following the directions. He's in the middle of a forest, in the middle of nowhere. And so the, the, the client gets out of the car. He starts to walk over to a small shed that's situated somewhere in this middle of this forest. And the, the driver, is, you know, he's on this little road. And he sees a place that he could pull over his car just in case... In the, in the possibility that someone else is going to happen to drive through. And he's going to wait for him there. A little bit out of, uh, out of view, but he's going to wait for him. And he tells him, I'm going to wait over there a minute away. You'll come and get me when you're done. He says about 10, 15 minutes later, he gets a knock on the window. And he thinks, oh, the guy's done. We're going to leave. And the guy says, opens his window. He says, uh, could you do me a favor? He says, what? He goes, can you take the car and drive it about 10 miles away from here? Wait where you are, and when I'm ready, I'm going to call you and you'll come back. He says, you know, I don't understand why he's asking me to do that, but he's paying me. What am I going to do? And he starts to wonder what the heck's going on in this forest. <laughs> but he drives 10 miles away, finds a small little diner. He goes, he has a cup of coffee sitting over there, and uh, he waits for the call. About a half hour later, he gets the call, and the guy says, can you come pick me up? He drives back to the middle of the forest, exactly where he was. The guy's waiting. He picks him up, and they start to drive back. And now the driver's thinking about, you know, I drove him to the middle of the forest. <laughs> I saw this little hut that shouldn't even be there. I don't know what happened. And then he had to send me away. He goes, you know, uh, he's thinking to himself, you know, I'm so curious. So he says, he says, you know, I, I know it's not, it's not the right way. I know it's a... Uh, against protocol i know it's not business-like but you know i've been driving you for a long time and please you don't have to answer if you don't want to answer you can tell me to mind my own business if you want me to mind my own business but my question is really what what happened that i dropped you off and then you sent me 10 miles away to come back and then then you called me to pick you up i'm, I'm just so curious I, I i understand if you don't want to tell me but if you don't mind i, I would love to try to understand and the client says, no, I don't, I don't mind at all. He says, let me tell you, unfortunately, he says, I was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, the doctors worked on me for a while. And recently, they completely, completely gave up hope on me living. And after I heard this, I became desperate. And I started checking on things. Is there some way I can stay alive? I really don't want to die. So I began looking into psychics. And those people who are familiar with black magic. And uh, a friend of mine gave me information on this, this, uh, this, this guru person. He's a guru. He lives up here in the, in the forest. And this guy, my friend told me, has saved people's lives and cured them. So I got in touch with him and he wanted a lot of money. And I was going to come up and I said, you know what? 
I'm going to die anyway. I have plenty of money to leave my kids. A little less to give this guy to take a shot to see if anything could happen. Who knows? If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If it works, it works. A few thousand dollars, I really don't care at this point. He said, so I decided I'm going to drive up here, see what happens, and go from there. And that's where you dropped me off. He says, but when I got inside... This guru tried to work his incantations. He tried to work his magic. He was calling and he was sweating and something was going on. Something wasn't working. And, and he, he got very upset with me. And he started to yell at me. He said, how did you get here? I said, I, I, I drove up from New York. He goes, did you drive? He goes, no, no, a driver drove me. He goes, where's the driver? He goes, he's outside. He goes, is the driver Jewish? He goes, yeah, I think he is Jewish. He goes, you go outside and tell that driver to, to drive away at least 10 miles away. He goes, why? What's going on? He goes, his soul is interfering with my magic. And if he doesn't get out of a distance far enough where his soul is not messing things up for me, I can't do anything for you. So I went outside. I asked you to drive away 10 miles. We waited for about 15 minutes. And then he went through the whole process again. And uh, we went through this process for about a half hour. And he was able to perform his magic. And that was the end of the story. And so he tells the rabbi, he said, Rabbi, you know, I, I started to think about it. If this guru felt my soul. And the fact that I'm Jewish, even though I'm not religious and I'm not connected and I don't have any relationship with Hashem, but if my neshama, if my soul was so powerful, just sitting in the car, that it prevented this guru from accessing all his channels of, of the koach, of tumah, of the dark side, of black magic, I just started to realize how holy and powerful my neshama is, even though I was disconnected from the Torah. And I said to myself, I have to look more into it. And you know, I drove a lot of rabbis around. So there was a local rabbi that I knew and I called him and told him what happened. And little by little, I decided I'm going to start fulfilling the mitzvot. I took on myself not to work Shabbat. I took on to myself next to wear tefillin every morning. I took on to myself to only eat kosher. And I'm growing because I realized that my soul is holy and I should be doing the right thing. Someone asked me, so what happened with the guy? I have no idea what happened with the, with the business client and if the black magic worked. But sometimes I have a feeling the black magic worked. Uh, you know, my, my own personally, uh, we have a relationship with a guy. His name is, is, is uh, Gutman Locks, Guru Gil, they call him. Guru Gil was an amazing guy. He went to the army during the uh, Korean War. He ended up in Japan. He learned from uh, from a from a local uh, karate and jujitsu. Became a black belt. He came back. Was successful in business. Was looking for spiritual reality. Met some guru who sent him to India. In India, he started searching and searching. Studied under a guru for years. And he became a guru himself. He became the guru of Central Park. He came back to New York. He would sit in Central Park on, 
on 86th Street in Central Park West, and he would sit for hours at a time, and people would come from all over to sit around him, and he was silent for years, he didn't speak, he slept on someone's roof across the street, and he talks about the 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 dark side and accessing the dark side and the complications of accessing the dark side with his Jewish soul, which eventually brought him from one place to another, and today he's a, he's a Yehudi Dati, He's a religious guy, a study guy. He's the guy every morning who gets up at 3.30 or so. He goes to the Kotel. He sets up the chairs for everyone to be able to sit. He prays every morning the Vatikin at the Sunrise Minyan. And he's the guy who mans the Tefillin station and gets people every day to acknowledge their Judaism, gets children, kids to, to commit that they're going to only marry a Yehudi. Every single day, he's able to turn a soul back. And many people who get involved in Eastern religions, they turn to him because he knows. He knows that the dark side there really exists. There's not this innocence of Buju, of the Buddhist Jew. There's not so innocence. Buddhism, it's Hinduism. There's all this aspect of Avodah Zarah and access to really to a dark side. Years ago, I had a designer come in with a client and the, the client was from, from Paris and they were doing an apartment in Manhattan and we sat together and the designer came in with the designer's assistant, the client, and the client had someone with, with her and the, this woman who was with her apparently was a shaman. And we sat on the table in our conference area where you know three people sat on one side, three on the other side, and we have the TV screens on top, the floor plans on the table, and we're going through different items, pinning, and the whole time sitting opposite me to the right was the shaman person. And the shaman person, while everyone else is looking at the pictures, looking at the screen, looking at the, at the floor plans, trying to work things out, the shaman person is staring at me. And I got up to get something, and the shaman person is still staring at me. I came back. She's still staring at me. And finally, I said to her, I said, listen, do I have like a, a spot on my head? Do I have something that, that's bothering you that you're staring at me? And she says to me, no. She says to me, you're a Jew. I said, yeah. She goes, something very strange. I said, what? She goes, I, I rarely see this. I said, what do you see? And she said to everybody, every time he gets up, there's an angel that's standing behind him with a sword. And there's an angel standing in front of him with a sword. And when he sits down opposite me, this angel is standing in front of him, holding the two swords right at me. Okay, crazy story, but... She saw that, whether it's true, not true. There's some reality to this, to this, to this dark side that Abraham Avinu had to deal with. Abraham Avinu is dealing with people who are worshiping the dark side, who are sacrificing to the idols. We, we explained before a number of times again that the, the, the waiter story, you know, you tip the waiter and the waiter is giving you things for free even though the owner of the restaurant is there. And this is the way of Avodah Zarah, they're tipping the angels, they're sacrificing to the angels. And the, the reality Hashem makes Avodah Zarah work so that people have a free choice of whether they want to do the Avodah Zarah or not do the Avodah Zarah. And there is a channel to the dark side. And you see the people, and, and you see the people are sacrificing to the dark side. They're committing, which probably one of the things we can imagine is the most heinous of, 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 of Abu Dazara is sacrificing to, uh, to Molech. Molech was, a, was, a, was an idol, and basically we see to later, even today, we see from archaeologists statues of Molech where they show that this is a huge idol made out of metal with an opening in the belly of the idol, and that's where they would. They would put horribly, a person would sacrifice their own baby 
and put it to burn to death in this in this belly of this idol in order to give this idol to in order to give this uh, this spiritual energy to the idol and Abraham Avinu he fought against this he preached against this he told people to stop doing this nonsense he told people to stop worshipping the sun and moon stop going through the dark side there's a way to go the right way there's a way through Hashem Hashem is not only the creator of the world which they all acknowledged but Hashem is also the force that makes everything exist that everything happens with Hashem in the world so, so Abraham had to face this. This was a, a big difficulty for him to face. But there's also another side. And the other side is that I, that I mentioned this, this aspect of, uh, of the astrology. The rabbis teach us that Abraham Avinu, he was tested 10 times. He passed each one. And there's a disagreement among the rabbis, among the Rishonim, the generations of the rabbis who lived in the, in the 11th to the 15th centuries, uh, what exactly were those tests? And some say that these were the tens, others say these were the tens. So if we start combining the ten, 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 ten that all of these different rabbis suggest are the ten, we see much, much more than ten. And we see that even after the completion of the tenth test, which is the, the Akedah, we still see more tests. Next week we're going to see Abraham Avinu, he comes back after the Akedah. And he was promised the entire land by Hashem. He has no place to bury his wife. He went and did the word of Hashem and his wife dies. These are tests that a person is facing. But undoubtedly, two of the most difficult tests that we read about this week in the Berasha are the commandment that Hashem tells him to listen to your wife and get rid of Hagar, get rid of Ishmael, throw them out of the house. And finally, the Akedah, to bring Yitzhak Avinu to an Akedah, to sacrifice him. These tests, as some of the others, are all the more difficult because they really go against the nature of Abraham. That's really something more than, than, than just a test. In our society, it's become very common, whether we judge someone for a crime, drug abuse, academic failure, poor social mobility, we blame the parents, we blame their social place, we blame everything. And, and we have to admit that, that many, if not most, social problems are linked to bad parent-child relationships. But if we take it further, it's becoming more and more accepted for lawyers. You know, they present neuropsychiatric genetic evidence in criminal courts in defense of their clients. And the argument basically says that it wasn't my client's fault. It was his genes that made him do it. It was his parents. It was where he was born. It was how he was born. Studies into blaming one's genes, one's nature for one's behavior continue around the world. And as a society, we grow to give so much leeway to a person because of their nature. One hears again and again, what can we do? What can you do? He or she was born that way. And the rabbis teach us that although we may not understand it, there's some truth to astrology. And whether we accept this or not is unimportant as the lesson can be taught relating to nature or nurture, genes or the upbringing. It's exactly the same vein. And perhaps the rabbis, some of the rabbis at least had this in mind. We're told that Abraham Avinu was the world's most preeminent astrologer. He understood astrology. He's the son of Terach. Terach was definitely the astrologer to Nimrod. He was an advisor to Nimrod. Remember, it's Terach who turns his son over to Nimrod as a, as a rebel who's going to mess up the system. 
And the scientists of those days came from all over the world to study astrology which with Abraham, with Abraham. And we, we see that, that the rabbis uh, say that Abraham Avinu wrote Sefer Yetzirah, which has to do so much with astrology. The rabbis go on and further explain that when Abraham turned to Hashem complaining that he would have no children, how did he do that? He did it based on his understanding of the stars, of the mazalot, of the astrology of destiny. The Gemara itself writes in, in the Gemara Shabbat says, Abraham said to Hashem, Borei Olam, master of the universe, my, my steward is going to inherit me. And Hashem replies to him, no, only that which comes from you, only your own child that's going to be born from you. And Abraham Avinu, the Gemara says, turns to Hashem, he says, master of the universe, I've already looked at my horoscope. I see that I'm not fit to bear a son. And Hashem said to him, disregard your horoscope. For the constellations, the mazalot, have no power over Israel. What do you think, Hashem asks, that Jupiter is situated in the west and therefore you can't have children? I'll simply remove it from the west and put it in the east. What's going on? Rashi explains that when Avraham Avinu was born, his zodiac sign, Jupiter, was located in the West. And the West is a cold place, not suitable for fathering children. Or perhaps really you think about seeing it in the West means that it's setting. The world ends with him. The sun is setting. Jupiter is setting there. Avraham Avinu is setting. There's no continuation. Therefore, Hashem moves it to a warmer location, we say the East, Showing Avraham Avinu that he's not going to be the end. He's going to be the east of the sun is rising. He's the beginning. And really that's what we see. Everyone comes from Avraham. Setting aside this reconfigure of the constellations, I, I really was intrigued. What do the rabbis tell us about Jupiter? The fact that Avraham Avinu's sign was Jupiter is explained by the Maharasha. Our teacher, Rav Pinhas Friedman, he says a person who's born based on the Maharasha, a person who's born during the hour of Jupiter, what we're told astrologically, he's going to be moral and righteous. Moral and righteous. Rashi explains. This refers particularly to a person who's focused on giving tzedakah to the poor. And remember, the, ter the generic term mitzvah refers to tzedakah. It was for this reason that Abraham Avinu is the epitome of Chesed. He's the guy who represents the Midah of Chesed, the Sfirah of Chesed. He was the one who welcomed guests into his home. He's charitable to everyone. And this is the message conveyed by the Midrash. The constellation of Jupiter influenced Abraham Avinu. It's interesting, Rabbi Reuven said, Jupiter would cry out declaring... That if not for Abraham Avinu, there would be no one to represent him. So to say that the rabbis are saying that Abraham is the ultimate in the representation of what Jupiter should be. So although Abraham Avinu would now be able to have children, he still remains under the influence of Jupiter, which always established his nature. My rabbi, Rabbi Abitan, had a teacher. His name was Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler. We all know Rabbi Dessler. 
Rev Dessler explains that Avraham is known as the man of kindness. You know, it's so cool when I think that my teacher was Rabbi Abitan, my teacher's teacher is Rav Dessler, and therefore I'm a student directly of Rav Dessler through my rabbi. It's just unbelievable how the connections are. And Rav Dessler would explain about Avraham, his nature, his nature was to do good. And this came from a burning desire to give. His chesed, his kindness was proactive. And we see this through the stories of his hospitality in the opening verses of this week's Perasha. We see it in his pleas for Sedom later in this week's Perasha. We see it in his action last week going to war to save his nephew Lot. So really, if we imagine that Abraham is driven by this, this chesed, this is what makes him tick. This is his, so to say, his ta'ava. This is his, his desire. This is his desire to feel, to do chesed. So we see that the two tests he's given to drive away his son, Yishmael and Hagar, and then later being commanded to bring his other son, Yitzchak, and to bind him as a sacrifice are even more difficult because they go completely against the nature of Abraham Avinu. This is a man who spent his life taking in the poor. This is a man who spent his life feeding them, housing them, educating them. Come sit under my tree, let me cook for you. Running to get them cheese and bread and milk and make sure that they were, they were, they were, they were cool and they were taken care of and they were bathed. He did everything. What happens then? He's educating people. He's telling them the right way to be. And he's going to then go completely against his nature when Hashem commands him to get rid of Yishmael and Agar. And you see how reluctant he is and Hashem has to come and say, no, listen to what your wife Sarah is telling you to do. He's going to throw out the woman who bore him a son. He's going to throw out the woman who left her father's palace in Mitzrayim, the daughter of Paro. She left the luxury of her life to become a follower of Abraham and Sarah. She came in to bear a child for Abraham. She's going to abandon them in the desert. He's going to abandon them in the desert. Can we imagine the anguish of Abraham Avinu? And as we mentioned before, the rabbis tell us that Abraham, if he had a single pet project in the world, it was to eradicate the worship of Molech. Molech became... Molech, which we describe this child sacrifice, passing children through fire. It says, it says, babies placed in the hall drown out their cries. They play drums so that they wouldn't hear as they burn the child alive. And the couple sacrificed their firstborn. They believe that Molech is going to give them financial prosperity, more children, more family. But Abraham fought against this wherever he went. Now what's happening? Hashem is asking Abraham Avinu to go against his nature. He's asking him to go against his life work of preventing human sacrifice and to bring his own child. It made no sense, which is exactly the argument that Satan used, hoping that either Abraham or Yitzchak would be unwilling to complete the test. Satan came to Abraham, he says, listen, it's impossible that Hashem could have told you this. You had to hear it wrong. He couldn't ask you to sacrifice Yitzchak if Yitzchak is the future. He told Abraham, you're old, you're hearing things. It's not possible. Your nevuah is off. 
And then he tells Yitzchak, your father is telling you to do this. Your father's old Sina. How could it be? He's making a mistake. And what does the Torah tell us that the two of them went yachdav together? There's a tremendous lesson for us in the test that Abraham is tested. So we're going to be tested. We have to remember, we're not tested to follow our nature. I remember the rabbi would say, it's not a test to the guy who wakes up at 5 o'clock every morning to come to Minyan. He's up early every day anyway. It's not a test for the person who, 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 who wants to take Shabbat, who has the luxury to take Shabbat, who needs Shabbat to take Shabbat. The test is when we're asked to go against our nature. It's to go against our nature. The Gemara tells us that that, that that for many of us, we have to remember, you know, Abraham's test is to go against his nature to do chesed. Halavai, that our nature of all of us should be that we should do chesed, that we should face the test like Abraham, which is an incredibly hard test because it's it's almost like you're not saying going against Yetzir Hara. It says, but the Gemara tells us that most of us have a desire to take things that aren't ours. For us, it's natural, the Gemara says, to want things that really don't belong to us. It's natural to withhold the truth and to lie for most of us. Some of us have a ta'ava when it comes to when it comes to gilui arayot. Some of us about stealing. Some of us, or most of us, about lying. So really what the Gemara is telling us that our tests are in overcoming whatever is our nature. For others, their nature is different. So we can't put ourselves in other people's shoes. Everyone's nature, their nurture is different. So the test they face is different. For one person, the test may be to overcome or to control what seems right and feels good to me. You know, I remember when it was the Mekubalim would come to town. And they would ask the rabbi, can I go see the Mikubal? He's going to tell me what my, what, my, what my tikkun is, what my repair is in this life. And the rabbi would say very simple, you don't need to, to go to the Mikubal to find out that answer. Tamim diyeh, you should be pure, you should be simple with Hashem, your God. The answer to your question is very simple. The answer to what your tikkun is, is very simple. Our greatest test, our greatest tikkun or repair, the rabbi would explain, is in fixing that which is most difficult for us to do. If we face reality and look realistically at ourselves and see that which is the hardest thing to, for us to overcome, we can know that that's our test. The rabbis also teach us that Hashem gives us no test which we cannot pass. We explain that when a person comes back as a Gilgul, a person goes up to heaven and he's being judged. And after he's given a choice, you want to go to Gehinam or you want to try to fix this. He says, I'll go back and fix it. How are you going to fix it? And he designs the test in order to fix it himself. He sets himself up where he's going to be, what his nature is, what his nurture is, in order for him to be facing a test to overcome that test. The rabbis tell us that Hashem doesn't give us any test that we cannot pass. And furthermore, each test will in the end be to our benefit. 
as though being sent away Ishmael, you know, we, we have to remember Ishmael goes away, he repents, and he returns. Through the Akedat Yitzhak, Isaac is elevated to the level of almost like an angel. So really, we have to remember as we go through this parasha, we praise Hashem and we, we remember the Avot. Elohe Avraham, Elohe Yitzhak, Elohe Yaakov. We say, Magen Avraham. Baruch Atah Hashem, Magen Avraham. Magen Avraham is a shield of Avraham. It's a force field surrounding us. We have to remember that each of us has this gene of Avraham within us. And this gene means that no matter how difficult the test is, we could face it, set aside the excuses, and overcome. Bezrat Hashem, we should all be able to do this. We should succeed and bring Mashiach b'mirah b'yamino amen. Have a great week, everybody. Shabbat shalom.